Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. A couple more. Here, I'll grab some. You got some? Anybody else? I, I want got one myself. <laughs> it's a living Bible. No. Right. A pastor throwing Bibles at that church. What's going on with that? Well, awesome. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 26 this morning. So starting in verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. As surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The title of my message this morning is Matters of the Heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who can convicts us, teaches us, exhorts us as we go through your word, how we need to be living, what we can do to better please you, how we can find comfort and peace. So much, Lord, that you do for us through your word. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We also pray, Lord, if anyone has joined us this morning that has not surrendered their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, they're not Christians this morning, they're not saved, Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, Lord, their need to repent, and their need to come to you in faith. We thank you for your love and grace. We ask your blessing upon our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think about your heart, your physical heart, it's really an amazing organ. It weighs about a pound or a little less. It's an amazing workhorse. It pumps 100,000 times every day, pushes 2,000 gallons of blood through 60,000 miles of arteries and capillaries and veins. That's your physical heart. Now, when we use the word heart as a figure of speech, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's Valentine's Day and a box of chocolate shaped in a heart. Maybe it's a some music, and the music touched my heart this morning, or in my heart, but my spirit as well. 
You might also look at the heart as, as a drive. Man, that guy has heart. He has ambition. Or maybe you're going to take a trip downtown. You're going to go to the heart of the city. Now, the Bible speaks about the heart of men and women as the very core of our beings, the very center of our being. It's that heart, that core of our being that I want to talk about today. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And that's what we're going to see. See, according to the Bible, it's that core, that center of your being that the Lord looks at, that the Lord wants to change. There's a story found about a, uh, a family from the backwoods area of Tennessee that was making their first trip to a big city. They checked into this grand hotel and stood in, ama- in amazement at this impressive sight. Well, leaving the reception desk, they came to the elevator entrance. They, they'd never seen an elevator before in their lives, and so they're just kind of staring at it, trying to figure out what it is. About that time, this old lady hobbled towards the elevator she went inside. Well, the doors closed, and about a minute later, the doors opened, and out came this stunning, amazingly good-looking young woman. I mean, Dad couldn't stop staring. Without turning his head, he, he grabbed his son by the arm and said, Quick, quick, go get your mother. <laughs> you know, some people live their whole lives with their hearts unchanged, unchallenged, unaltered, unsaved. Others meet Christ, and when they do, they discover that He changes from the inside out, from the heart out. And that's what we're looking at this morning. In Matthew's Gospel here, in chapters 5 through 7, we've come to arguably the most most famous teaching ever shared called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon about what happens when we live as God intends us to live, as we allow God to change our hearts. Now, the first 16 verses here of chapter 5 really describe the true Christian and deal with our character. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount deals with conduct that grows out of our character. The first 16 verses here, uh, Jesus shows us that the true righteousness is inward. But now in these verses today, Jesus is also showing us that sin also begins inward. It begins in our heart. Now, in so doing this, Jesus is going to expose the false righteousness of the Pharisees, you know, they taught that holiness consisted in religious actions and that sin was only something that you did outwardly. How many people make that same mistake today? Oh, if I look good on the outside, I go to church, I say the right things, and I'm holy. It doesn't matter what's going on in my heart. Jesus is showing us this morning, it does matter. It matters a lot. And to get to see this, he's going to talk about the law, about our hearts, and show us the solution on how to live a holy life. And so if you're taking notes, those are our three points this morning. Number one, the law. Number two, the heart. Number three, the solution. Let's, let's begin with the law. Now, up until this point, Jesus has made some radical statements. Remember, he started off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that, that, that mourn and, and so on. Blessed is the man or the woman who sees themselves as they really are before God, spiritually bankrupt and destitute. And they mourn over their sin. And they repent of that sin. And, 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 and we're also told, we looked at, we're to be salt and light. You know, a light in a, in a dark world and salt in a corrupt world. Now those listening to this sermon, these disciples would have been like, wow, this is radical stuff. What is he going to say next? I mean, they're just blowing their minds. And the big question that every faithful Jew at that time would want to know is, where does Jesus stand when it comes to the law and and the prophets? And Jesus, knowing this, look at verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, what is the law and the prophets? Well, in Jesus' day, the law meant, you know, the first five books of Moses, 
the Ten Commandments, or by referring to, referring to the Law and the Prophets, that meant the whole Old Testament Scriptures. Now we know the Jews also had their oral law, which was the rules and regulations handed down that spoke of the specific dealings with situations that didn't really appear that the law applied. So, so in other words, you know, it, here's what the law says, but then here's like 20 other things that had to apply that law. In Jesus' day, there was two main schools, the school of Hillel and Shemai. There were 613 commandments, traditions, and examples without numbers, which made the law very confusing, very frustrating. So when Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, he's only speaking of the whole Old Testament, not these 613 man-made commandments that cause the law to be so confusing. Now, actually, the Pharisees were the ones that were destroying the law through their man-made-up rules, you know, to try and follow the law. And, 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 And we'll look at that in a moment. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That word fulfill means to carry out, make it full, to get to the heart of it. See, everything the law was pointing to was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament types laid out in Leviticus and Numbers were fulfilled in Him. He was the Passover lamb. He was the the burnt offering. He was the scapegoat. He was now going to fulfill everything that the law was pointing to. I like Warren Wiersbe's commentary on this. It's a great illustration. He says this, And Jesus fulfilling the law... Instead of destroying of the law, it is likened to me taking an acorn and saying, watch me destroy this. And I take a hammer and smash the acorn. Or I can still choose to destroy this acorn by planting it in the ground and letting it turn into a tree. It'll still be destroyed, but now it'll be destroyed through fulfillment. And I love that, that illustration because Jesus Christ does the same thing with the law. Through his death and resurrection, he's not destroying the law, he's fulfilling the law through love. See, God gave the law uh, out of love to protect and help God's people to, to live holy and set apart lives. And Jesus now makes it all possible through his death and resurrection and the power of his Holy Spirit. But then Jesus really verifies this point when he says this in verse 18. He says, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You know, jot and tittle. What's a jot and a tittle? Well, the jot is the smallest Hebrew letter, yod, and, and the tittle is a stroke or projection that distinguishes one letter from the other. I actually found a picture that had them both up there. It's a lot bigger on the screen, but on a little piece of paper, it's really, really, really tiny. But it would be as if Jesus was saying, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, every I will be dotted and every T will be crossed in fulfillment of the law. He's saying you can count on it. Everything that the law was pointing to, I came to fulfill. But then he says something interesting. Now look at verse 19. He says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when it comes to the law, when it comes to Ten Commandments, if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And any violation of God's law makes one least in the kingdom, which is equal to being outside of the kingdom and under condemnation. See, he's getting to the point that no one can be made righteous by their own actions. That's why what he says next must have really absolutely blown their minds. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I bet at that point their mouths dropped. What? I mean, they had to be in shock because as far as they were concerned, I mean, no one was more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what those men lived for. 
They were constantly displaying how righteous they were by the types of robes that they wore and, the, and all the, the types of borders they had on the robes, mainly, mainly by their actions. I mean, these are the guys that Jesus talked about when he said, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, why would they say strain at a gnat? Because the law said you were not to, allowed to eat anything with blood in it. And so they would see a Pharisee standing on the corner, putting his finger down his throat, making himself gag, you know, trying to, to throw up because, man, you know, well, what's wrong? Well, I accidentally swallowed a gnat. I can't have it in my mouth. Crazy stuff. These Pharisees were so committed to not looking at a woman inappropriately that they were known as the bump-and-stumble Pharisees. They walked around with their heads down like this and they'd run into walls and everything else. And, and so, see, that's what it's about for them. It's all about the law. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've got to be more righteous than these guys if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have blown them away. But to see, Jesus here is setting the foundation to the fact that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 would say. There's no one good enough, no one righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The only righteousness by which sinners may be justified is the perfect righteousness of God that is imputed to those who believe. You see, if, if keeping the law saves me, then I've got to keep on working at it. I've got to keep on performing. I've got to keep going and going and going and keep on trying and trying to make sure that God sees in some way that I'm trying to work, but, but, but work out this promise, you know, from God in my flesh. And here's what it's like. Years ago, I think someone gave our family a hamster. I would never buy one. I can't imagine myself buying one. I don't know how we got it, but we had one. And this thing would hop in the little hamster wheel, you know, and they would run like crazy, just go, 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 you know, this thing would spin and spin. Now, eventually, it got out, and, and this is a kind of a, a bad story. My son was trying to catch it, Chris, who's here from the Navy, and, and I'm going to embarrass him. But it had crawled behind a box that we had on the ground, and, and he knew it was there. So he put his foot to, on the box to trap it between the box and the wall. <laughs> All I have to say, it wasn't spinning on the wheel anymore. Um, here's my point. <laughs> <laughs> you got a point in that, Tom? Yeah. We're prone in a religious way to perform for God, like that hamster on the wheel, spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Look at what I'm doing, God. God, I'm doing this. Do you love me now? Do you love me now? Doing that, that, that now. Do you love me? Am I good enough for heaven? Spin, spin, spin. Listen, we need to get to the no spin zone. Okay, God says, stop. What makes you good enough is in, for heaven is the cross. That's it. His blood that was shed for you. That's what gets you into heaven. What he did, not you. Forgiveness was brought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as we sang this morning. So don't try and work your way into something that you can't earn or you don't deserve. You see, Jesus here is calling his disciples to a deeper, more radical relationship with God than that of the Pharisees. That it isn't about the outward observances of holy living, but an inward matter of the heart. And that brings us to our second point, the heart. Because ultimately, the condition of the heart will determine the quality of our lives. The basis for a right standing with God uh, has to do with one's heart. I mean, think about in the marriage relationship. When two people get married, they make this great commitment to each other. I promise to love you until death do us part. That first vow started in their hearts. Oh, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so these words are an external way of me expressing what's in my heart. Our hearts are the way we are on the inside. And that's what Jesus is about to expose. Because he's saying what, what goes on in the heart eventually is going to come out on the outside. Look now what Jesus says at verse 21. 
He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus begins with the external. On the outside, he says, you've heard that it says of old, you shall not murder. Now, uh, you've heard it from the rabbis and the, and the commentaries and in tradition, thou shalt not murder. And in fact, that is true. Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Murder is an unlawful crime of killing a person with malice or forethought. Now, let me say first what this is not saying. This is not saying that killing someone in self-defense is wrong. This is not saying that there's no such thing as just warfare. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. There is a righteous killing that doesn't constitute for murder, and I know that can be hard to take, but even in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we're told, yes, you must execute anyone who murders another person, for to kill a person is to kill a living being made in God's image. In fact, Romans chapter 13 alludes to the fact that the governing authorities can be God's ministers and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. We're also told in the word that there can be accidental homicide. But murder is different. The command against murder is the command against the intentional killing of another human being for purely personal reasons with malice and forethought. That's why Jesus says whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But the Lord says murder, which is an unjust killing of another human being, is more than just, just a bomb, more than just a bullet. It's more than an outward action. It's etern- internal. It's a matter of the heart. Look at verse 22. He says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Wow. We see a lot of anger today. I think it's our, our national pastime. You know, today we're seeing, you know, we have battered women, drive-by shootings, a world full of angry people. I mean, have you noticed how anger fills our world? I look at the, the college campus to, campuses today. Free speech is no longer accepted because anger and, and violence. You can't have certain guys come out and talk. Conservative guys can't come to campuses because there's going to be violence. We see anger in homes as anger in homes as homes are falling apart. And the news media they love to, to you know to play our anger by showing one group how it is being deprived and its rights by another group. So is Jesus saying anger is just as bad as murder? In one sense he is because it goes back to our hearts. I mean, think about the very first murder in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. Cain offered God a portion of the harvest while Abel offered his very best, the firstborn lamb. God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's and said to Cain this in Genesis 4, 6, and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at your door, and it desires for you, but you shall rule over it. But that should have been the end of the story. Cain should have said, you know what? Fine, I see where I'm wrong here. But all this did was cause Cain to get even more angry. So angry that he killed his brother. Now let me say this. Cain didn't all of a sudden wake up that morning and he started singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a wonderful feeling. I'm going to kill my brother today. I mean, he didn't start that way. You know, he wasn't all thrilled and all happy and everything. Cain was angry on the inside. He had unresolved and unconfessed anger. See, if Cain had confessed his anger and resolved it, then murder probably would not have been the outcome. One little boy, after hearing about the story of Cain and Abel from a Sunday school teacher, raised his hand and said, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It worked for my brother and I. (laughs) Now, Jesus does make an exception about anger. He says, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, without a cause, 
I'll tell you why I'm angry. Because I got cut off on the highway. That's why I'm angry. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus here is making an exception when it comes to righteous anger. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. Anger against sin. Anger over the illegal immigrant that killed Molly Tibbetts, a college student from the University of Iowa. That makes me angry. You know, according to the World Health Organization, every year in the world there are an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions. That's approximately 125,000 abortions per day. You know, that makes me angry. I don't, I don't like that. See, righteous anger has to deal with, with abuse, has to do with abuse. Righteous anger is when, when, uh, in response when a child is taken advantage of. When we rise up and say, that is wrong, that is unjust, and we're upset about it. Listen, when Jesus came into the temple, and he saw the religious leaders had turned the place into a way of, of making money, he was ticked off, to say the least. He said, you made my, my father's house to be a type of, uh, it was supposed to be a type of prayer for the entire nation, but you made it a den of thieves. And he's, he's turning over those tables. He's not, okay, you know, just turn this over. He, he was angry. He was angry. He was upset. Again, there's nothing wrong with just anger, anger against sin. But there, there's unjust anger and, and, and costless anger, anger that's just not right. There's a story of a young girl who was writing a paper for school on anger and came to her father and said, Dad, what's the difference between anger and exasperation? The father replied, well, it's mostly a matter of degree. Let me show you what I mean. With that, the father went to his telephone and dialed a number at random to the man who answered the phone. He said, hello, is Melvin there? The man answered, there's no one living here named Melvin. Why don't you learn to look up numbers before you dial them? See, the father said to his daughter, that man was not a bit happy with our call. He was probably very busy with something and we annoyed him. Now watch. The father dialed the same number again. Hello, is Melvin there? Asked the father. Now look here, came the heated reply. You just called this number and I told you that there's no Melvin here. You've got a lot of nerve calling again. The receiver slammed down hard. The father turned to the daughter and said, you see, that was anger. Now, I'll show you what exasperation means. He again dialed the same number. And when the violent voice roared, Hello, the father called me and said, Hello, this is Melvin. Has there been any calls for me? <laughs> Listen, anger can't be born out of frustration. I'm frustrated with you, so I'm angry. Anger can come from seeing someone who's, who's been blessed and we've become full of bitterness and en- envy. We don't want that person to prosper and we're, we're angry maybe even at that person. Or maybe I'm angry because you didn't respond to me in the way that I, I would have liked and so I don't feel respected. So now I have a grudge and it's taken the form of bitterness. Anger in the form of bitterness, hatred and malice has extreme destructive power. It's been said that 15 minutes of anger, you can use up as much energy as in an entire day of hard work. That anger can disorder nerves and deposit poison in the bloodstream. Anger in forms such as envy, fear, and hate can cause disease and even death. It destroys relationships. It destroys peace. Anger, unresolved, unjust anger, will always hinder our efforts to portray the personality of Jesus in our daily living. So if anger is a problem in your life, you can make the decision to change, but you must seek God's help. How do we overcome anger? Well, you can do it this way. The way that I read of a story, I heard of a nice old gentleman of 75 who got a good report from his doctor after his medical examination. Doctor asked him how he kept in such good shape. 
Walter explained, when I got married about 50 years ago, my wife and I made an agreement that if I lost my temper, got angry, she would stay silent. But if she lost her temper, I would leave the house and go for a stroll. I credit my good health to the well-known advantage of walking a lot. (laughs) But how do we overcome anger? By understanding that unjust anger is sin. And we need to deal with sin like we deal with any other sin that that confronts us. We need to realize what it is, repent of it, and turn and go the other way. Because Jesus is going after our hearts. And he wants to do a beautiful renewal in our hearts. He wants to do open heart surgery. He's telling us, hey, look, you've heard it said in times past you shouldn't kill people for unjust reasons. You shouldn't club someone over the head. I mean, that's murder. It's wrong. And murder begins in your heart. And who you really are begins in your heart. And you must be careful not to hold grudges, not to hold bitterness. Bury the hatchet and handle it and not in the other person's back. Juanita handed me this newspaper clipping before service. She had no idea what we were talking on this morning. But, but I have it and I want to read it to you. It's called Forgiveness. He says, I did not know that men of this incident... I did not know the men of this incident personally, but my friend Dale told me the story. Earlier in their lives, these two neighbors had a serious disagreement and had been enemies for years. One of them was on his deathbed, or apparently thought so, hence he sent for his neighbor to come to try to make things right. They talked it over and seemed to come to terms. As the neighbor was leaving, the sick man said, but if I get well, things remain just as they were before. I suppose you would call that bearing the hatchet with the handle still out. If you have a hatchet that needs to be buried, be sure the handle is buried also. Take care of it now. You'll be glad you did. I thought, that's of the Lord. I needed to share that with me. Listen, it begins in the heart. Cain murdering his brother Abel was hatred rooted in envy. The definition of envy is discontent or uneasiness at the sight of another's good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and desire to possess some degree of advantages. John put it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Anyone who hates another Christian is really a murderer at heart, and you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. He went on to say in 1 John 2, verse 9, If anyone says, I'm living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. See, murder begins with anger. Anger begins in the heart. And that's humbling. Because it tells me that we all need help. We all need His healing. We all need His forgiveness. Unless we take an honest look at ourselves, we won't see our sin and we won't see our need for a Savior and we'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as if this wasn't far enough, our Lord takes it a step further, telling us that ultimately what is in our heart is going to come out of our mouths. Jesus next condemns abusive language. Look at verse 22 again. He says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whatever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Whoa. See, we can't underestimate the power of our words. I think we're all familiar with the, with the phrase, talk is cheaper. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. That's not true. They do hurt. I mean, think about maybe when you were in third grade or fourth grade and someone made a remark that, you know, you can remember that. Words hurt. Names can be deadly. That's a fact. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus says in Matthew 12.36, But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it the day of judgment. James tells us, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a force the little fire kindles. Just think of the power of our words. For those of you that are married this morning, the moment you said, I do, 
That covenant was made in heaven. Everything changed. I think about Zacharias. John the Baptist's father said five words and it cost him 40 weeks of silence. He couldn't talk for 40 weeks. Our generation has seen men rise up, speak words, and then millions die. But we've also, as our generation, seen men like Billy Graham rise up and see millions upon millions saved. You know, just 56 words the Lord gave a model for prayer. 266 words Abe Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. 297 words God gave the Ten Commandments. And 300 words we have the Declaration of Independence. The Lord is telling us here, our words are powerful and they originate on the inside. Socrates understood this. He said to one of his students, Speak, friends, so that I might see you. Speak, that I might know you. Because what comes out of one's mouth reflects who they are. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts that verse. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Matthew 12, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. See, having said that now, we see that Jesus is, is condemning abusive language. So catch the, catch the order here. He's saying murder is holding grudges. Murder is bitterness. Murder is being angry with a person for an unjust cause. It's not right, so stop it. But he adds bitterness and anger and holding grudges leads to abusive language. So he's condemning abusive language. And he says something interesting. He says, whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of counsel, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now this is not a pro- prohibition of using the word fool, otherwise Mr. T would be in big trouble. I pity the fool. Raka. Now, what's that word? Well, it's hard for us to understand what that phrase means because there's no modern equivalent in English to what it's saying. Uh, uh, A literal definition of Raka would be a senseless, empty-headed man. So, you would say today, calling someone, you brainless idiot, you empty-headed fool. But I don't think it's so much about the word as, as as it is about the attitude. This is speaking, you know, superiority over another person. It's a phrase that comes from an arrogant contempt towards another person. And the, and the words, the idea behind the word raka is that in your anger you hold the person who has wronged you in contempt and it becomes evident in your sarcastic tone of voice. And it takes the form of slander. It takes the form of, of backbiting. You know the word, the Bible says the meaning of the word backbite is to play the spy. You know, the spy, they go about and they, they get little clues here and there and, 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 you know, find, you know, half, you know, this, you know, half truths and skewed facts about the individual and then they pass them on to others. It's like this is saying, well, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? Now, now I, I don't have all the information, but this is what I heard. I, I heard it. And you're peddling this half-truth about this person. You know what that is? It's character assassination. You know, people would never consider committing murder, but they don't think twice about character assassination. Even though the Lord tells us in Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. But see, here's the problem. Uh, We're told in Proverbs 18.8, the words of a talebearer are like tasty triffles, and they go down in the inmost body. In other words, oh, yeah. Really? I didn't hear, what did you hear? This? And it's just going to take it all. Oh, that's tasty. You want to take it all in. 
There's an illustration, author known, that goes like this about gossip. My name is Gossip. I have no respect of justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I'm cunning and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I'm quoted, the more I'm believed. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no name or face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I get. I'm nobody's friend. Once I tarnish a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments. I wreck marriages. I ruin careers and cause sleepless nights and heartaches and indigestion. I make innocent people cry in their pillows. Even my name hisses. I'm called gossip. I make headlines and even more than that, I cause huge headaches. Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't, don't rock it. Don't, don't, don't slander. Don't backbite. But then he takes it one step further. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, I think this is a term that has to do with relegating a person to the position of a morally worthless person. You know, you're just putting them down because of who they are. You're looking at this person with disdain. And I think we can equate that to racism. You know, raka, you fool, pitting one race against another, slandering other people because of the color of their skin. Man, if that stuff comes out of your mouth, you're murdering them. See why Jesus links all this to murder. It's what comes out of the heart, not the actual act of killing another human, but being anger and bitter and gossip and slander and putting yourself better than other people and trash-talking people. It's no wonder, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why we need a changed heart. And that brings us to our final point, the solution, number three. Here's what you need to do if you committed murder in your heart. Here's what you need to do to make it right. Here's the solution. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, what Jesus is saying is that if you truly want to be righteous, it starts on the inside. It starts with your heart, making your heart right. As we open our hearts before the Lord at the altar of prayer and praise, and while we're praying, we remember that someone is angry with you or the other way around, you have anger in your heart, then Jesus is saying, get off your knees, leave your house, and go make that relationship right. Now, does that mean we have to track down every single person who ever had something against us? You know, for some of us, that might be a full-time job. (laughs) I think the key to this verse is in verse 23. If you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember. If you remember. If the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart about, about a person in prayer, hey, this person's got something against you, or you've offended this person, don't put it off. Don't wait to get a nasty email from them or or, uh, rumors get out. And I believe if you go back over your entire life and try to find everyone you've ever offended, I think you'd probably be in for a whole new set of hurts and and pains. I don't believe Jesus is telling us to to relive old hurts, but it's a matter of simply being obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit and restoring current relationships with, with one another to the best of your ability. That's why I love what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I'm glad he said, if it's possible, because sometimes it's just not possible because, you know, we're sinners. We're all sinners, and, and maybe someone, you know, they won't respond the same way you respond. But you need to do all that you can to be at peace with all men. In fact, he goes on to say, look at verse 25 and 26, the last two verses. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. As surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Basically, Jesus is saying, deal with 
the, the situation quickly. If you know someone that, that offended you, you're to act on that knowledge. If, then if you, now, if you, you don't know, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you do know, you need to respond. And let me say this. You need to have the right attitude of an apology. Not, I'm sorry, but you are a jerk. You know, no buts. Have you ever offended someone that, that, that you really didn't mean to offend? I think I've got that down to science, but I'm sure we all have. Have you ever thought, well, they really ought to just get over it, just grow up? And it's true. Maybe they ought to get over it, and it's probably true they ought to just grow up. But you see, we're not talking about winning an argument. We're not talking about being right or wrong. We're talking about pleasing our Heavenly Father. So when you apologize, when you say, I am sorry I offended you, the nature of an apology is that you are valuing your fellow man, the one for whom our Father so values, and who, by the way, Jesus died for. So even if they're being a baby, even if they're being childish, even if they do need to grow up, a simple apology, sorry I've offended you, goes a long way. Sorry. That in and of itself is good and righteous. Now, sometimes we do hurt people intentionally. I know we all have, and we need to apologize for that as well, taking full responsibility for our actions. I mean, think about this. How many relationships would be restored? How many churches would be stronger? How many fellowships would not split apart if this verse was practiced? If right away... We won and we handled the situation. We pursued peace with everyone. In fact, that's what Hebrews twelve fourteen tells us. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, the bottom line is our hearts need to change. I want to close with this. It's important that we are, are peacemakers, that we value other people, and it's important that we pursue holiness because if we don't, we won't see God in our, in our marriage. We won't see Him in our friendships. And our worship, we won't see God unless we're pursuing peace, unless we're pursuing holiness. Because holiness is required to have fellowship with God. You can't be in sin and be angry with your brother or sister and expect to have fellowship with God. You can't. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 5 tells us this. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have right standing with their God with God their Savior. See, this is not what you're doing outwardly. It's what's going on in your heart internally. Jesus wants to change our hearts. Psalm verse four, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 tells us this. You can be sure of this. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Don't sin by letting anger gain control over you. See, Jesus makes it clear. Our inside needs to be as clean as our outside. That is, our attitudes and thoughts are important not just our acts. Does that mean that being peeved at someone will keep us out of heaven? Of course not. It does mean that the attitude of hate is inappropriate in someone who expects eternal life. See, love is the attribute of heaven and hate is the attribute of hell. So let's go before the Lord and, and, and seek His forgiveness and His mercy. Seek His grace. Seek Him to, to change our hearts because apart from Him there is no righteousness. We used to sing this song years ago, Change My Heart, O God. Make it ever new. Change my heart, O oh God. Help me be like you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, it cuts to our heart. Lord, the things that we've read. Lord, we recognize that first and foremost that, that none of us are righteous. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That we can't make it into a right relationship with you by our works. We can't make it to heaven by doing good things. Lord, that's just spinning on a hamster wheel. 
That's all about what you've done on the cross for us by going to the cross, dying for our sins, rising again to give us that new life in you. We just repent of our sin, turn to you, surrender our hearts to you, and we're born again. We have this new life. We have the power of your spirit to work in us. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not made that commitment, they're not born again, Lord, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment to you. And Lord, for us that do know you, Help us to search our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in us, Lord. And lead us in your way of everlasting. If there's someone that we know that we've offended, Lord, or they maybe have offended us and, and we're holding a grudge to, Lord, help us to cast it aside. Seek forgiveness from you, Lord, and then seek forgiveness and reconciliation with our brother or with our sister. With as much as it is within us, Lord, help us to have peace with all men. Lord, thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Change our hearts, Lord. Make it ever new. Help us to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.